hello climate change waking up and taking action one conversation at a time i started this podcast so that i could have conversations with people about climate change because i find it overwhelming and compelling and um i feel like i went through a little stage where it felt like it was the only thing i could think about and it i couldn't bear that no that others were overwhelmed and not talking about it so this has been helpful so i'm really excited to talk to you this is eric tonesmeyer i'm talking to today an old friend um who i knew when we were both at hampshire college and when you were getting eric i was thinking about how excited you were about um plants um native wild edibles it was was an it was something that i was always excited about as when i was younger i still excited about like when i was in third grade i kept a notebook i would try wild plants and trying to teach myself all about it anyway so it's a shared interest but you've really gone all the way with it and made some amazing connections on this topic and just published a book so let's talk about what you're doing about the book about the process of writing about it about putting your mind so much on this topic for so long and what that's been like so let's just dive in wherever it takes us okay <laughs> all right so so why don't you what would you like to say well maybe i'll just tell the story of how i arrived at the uh at the book a little bit yeah perfect so i've been um studying um and practicing you know uh, permaculture and agroforestry and perennial crop plants for about 25 years for all of my adult, really since right after I left high school, which was some time ago at yeah. this point. <laughs> and uh, um, it was like uh, maybe 2008 or 2009. And um, I read everything by this writer, Tim Flannery. You know what, it's- Eric, you should probably back up and say something about what permaculture Oh, sure, sure. Okay. I I know what it is, but probably a lot of people who listen have no idea. Sure. Okay. So um, uh, permaculture is a a sort of ecological design movement and practice that uh, started in Australia in the 1970s. And it's really about um, uh, meeting human needs while improving ecosystem health by plugging... uh, different pieces into each other to create a like a functioning agro ecosystem that includes people um, and agroforestry is uh, is a far older practice than permaculture goes back thousands of years and it's really anytime you're integrating trees with annual crops or livestock or having a fully perennial system that maybe looks like a forest but works as a food production system. Um, and perennial crops or any crops that live three, three to 3,000 years. Um, so that's been my area. And it, it turns out that those things happen to be really good for climate change. I had no idea hmm. that they were. So I'm reading this Tim Flannery book, and he wrote like um, um, uh, The Eternal Frontier, which is a history of the last 65 million years of life in North America. It's really, really fascinating. and. Wow. So he had a new book, and I and I saw it was about climate change, but I figured I had to buy it anyway because I really like his stuff, and it wasn't too long. Oh, wait, you had to buy it anyway, like now oh, or never. No, now it's like I can handle ninety pages on climate change, right? <laughs> uh, it was a really good book, and I was like, and and one thing in particular, he does talk some about agriculture solutions in there, but he one particular line really struck with me. He said, "Well, reforestation is much." 
is a really powerful technique to remove excess carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but um, the amount of land it would take isn't available. The amount of land it would take to sufficiently do it without isn't available because we need to save land for agriculture. And I thought, well, you know, there's kinds of agriculture that have trees or are even based on trees. Um, So maybe I have something to contribute to this conversation. So I, um, oh my gosh, I applied for a fellowship and didn't get it. And I pitched articles to big magazines and didn't get them and talked to people about a PhD program and didn't get that. So I like explored all these avenues that were all total failures. Um, and, um, and then actually I was offered, uh, a couple of, uh, articles in, in the permaculture activist, which is a sort of a tiny little magazine here in the United States. One I've subscribed to for, for several decades, you know, um, uh, and that gave me a chance to sort of unpack these ideas. And it was when I did that that I um, decided to leave my job. I was running a farm here in the city and um, and uh, really go after this. So I um, that's what I did. Wow. And it's not your first book. So wait, let's go over the titles. Okay. Uh, the first one, which I did with Dave Jackie, was called Edible Forest Gardens. And that's sort of about these... Um, uh, forest-like food production systems mm-hmm. for cold climates and small scales. And then I did one on perennial vegetables. And then I did uh, Paradise Lot, which is like a garden memoir about our garden here mm-hmm. with a love story. Oh. Uh, and um, and then, uh, yeah, and then I started working on this one. So this one I... And this uh, one's called? Oh, called The Carbon Farming Solution. Right. And I got to work, I, I, uh, I did research on it for a number of years and then started, um, uh, uh, did a Kickstarter campaign, like a crowdsourced fundraising campaign in 2013. And I got the money that I needed in order wow. to write the book. And that was really cool. That was really fun. That's awesome. And like I remember reading about permaculture because you introduced me to the idea. And it was all, it was all... Everything that was written was about how to do it in New Zealand. <laughs> because and they have this lush, wonderful, you know, climate and you're dealing with the East Coast, uh, you know, New England basically. Um, so it's I think it's an important you've been filling an important need and I wish more people knew about it. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Maybe a few people Thank will listen you. to this. <laughs> much of much yeah. of my life has been spent filling in those gaps. Okay, yeah. if you can't grow ginger and pineapple guavas, right. what <laughs> can you do here? Yeah. Um, and actually for this book, I really went global. So I looked yeah. at the whole planet, but very much including cold climates. And even I think the worst climate in the world is cold deserts. I think that's like, wow. you know, Reno, Nevada and... Mm-hmm. Mongolia and these kind of like very dry, cold places is a really rough place to grow things. And I, I was very determined that I was going to find the very best possible candidates for those things. And I, and I certainly, you know, there's stuffy, there's perennial crops you can grow. There are agroforestry practices. There are, um, uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, regenerative agricultural practices for even cold, dry places. And, and often they really need it because those places have been beat up by bad farming a lot. So we have to figure out how to heal the land while, while fighting climate change. And it happens that 
almost all the strategies in the book that 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 fight climate change um, do a really nice job of of healing degraded land and increasing productivity and improving uh, biodiversity and helping to um, make soils better able to withstand droughts while also preventing flooding. Like there's all these multiple benefits that come from these practices as well as certainly some drawbacks and trade-offs and, you know, choices that have to be made and problems and stuff. Mm -hmm. But mostly it's a very, it's what was really cool to spend three years writing about climate change and feel more hopeful at the end than at the beginning. Wow. That was very like, the more I looked, the more hopeful I got. It's crazy. Wow. That's, that's good to hear. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, who knew? Who knew? I had no idea. It, yeah. so, so, what can you give us a, a few things that were sort of milestones of hopefulness that you sure. came across? Sure. Um, well, let's see. Um, one of them, I mean, I don't know. One of the big ones for me is that. Um, uh, so, okay, so we're, this is the bad news part first is that we're already over maybe some tipping points and on our way to a point of no return in terms of how much emissions we've given off. Right. Um, but if we were to dramatically reduce emissions, which is what we have to do, um, yeah. uh, agriculture and ecosystem restoration together can basically remove the excess carbon dioxide in the atmosphere if we were to do it today, like we're at a little over 400 parts per million now. And if we started getting on this right away, we could get back down to 350 parts per million, according to leading scientists. Wow. That's pretty great. Yeah. While increasing the productivity of agriculture and having all these other benefits happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. That's like great. So it's technically doable. Politically, that's another story. Right. But the, you know, um, it's really nice to know that there's very much hope uh, that it can be done and, and that it can solve all these other problems or address all these other problems at the same time. That's really cool. So uh, maybe we could take one or two places uh, on the planet and go into some specifics. Sure. I'll sure. you to choose. Like kinds of things that, that might be done. Well, yeah. one of the places where some of the most exciting stuff is happening is in the Sahel region of Africa, which is like a big savanna region uh, that covers a huge amount of amount of Africa where, you know, it's dry. There's a long dry season um, and um, uh, land has been degraded. So uh, when you clear there's carbon in plants. Like if you were to take just the trees and any landscape around you or whatever, the vegetation and dry it out and weigh it half of the weight of the biomass above ground would be carbon. And then there's also a bunch of carbon in the soil. That's mostly some of its roots, but mostly it's just sort of that organic matter, the humus in soil that makes soil fertile. Mm -hmm. Um, and most of the soils in the Sahel region have lost a huge amount of their organic matter and a, an awful lot or all of their above ground biomass from their trees and stuff. But there are traditional agroforestry systems there where people have mixed trees in with their annual crops and their livestock for millennia. Mm-hmm. And now they've sort of started developing, taking particular components of those traditional practices and really fleshing them out and developing whole systems based on those that, um, among other things, have very impressive um, increases in uh, 
in the production of crops. So one I really love is called evergreen agriculture. So you have there a rainy season and a dry season. And the rainy season is when you grow your crops. That's when you plant sorghum and cowpeas and stuff because there's water for them because mm-hmm. it's not irrigated there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, broadly speaking, mostly. Right. Um, uh, so this tree is one that grows in these parkland is what they call the traditional systems there that were just random, kind of like random appearing trees in the fields. But people notice that under these trees, the apple ring acacias, while the crops underneath the those sorghum and cowpeas and stuff want to grow in the rainy season this tree has no leaves in the rainy season okay so it doesn't block the light doesn't block the light and then it puts on its leaves in the dry season oh wow and it fixes nitrogen so it makes like fertilizer Mm -hmm. for them and when it drops its leaves that makes a nice mulch and they find they get you know i don't know um up to four times as as much production underneath them as they do farther away from the trees. So they've started planting them on like an orchard type spacing, like an apple orchard kind of spacing because they don't compete with the trees. I'm sorry. They don't compete with the crops beneath them. Um, And it also sequesters an impressive amount of carbon. Hmm. So you're impressing carbon, you're, you're sequestering carbon uh, in the soil and in the trees, you're improving the productivity of crops. That's like a win, win, for people and for the planet. Um, So that's one of my favorite examples. And then there's another one from, um, from Columbia called, well, actually originally from Australia. And now they're doing it in Columbia too. It's called uh, intensive silvopasture where it's a way to raise cattle that actually has a very positive impact on climate. And there's lots and lots of discussion about how livestock are a big part of the problem with climate. And they are, with the way that they're mostly raised today, but there are ways to raise livestock that are not. So in this one, you plant a tree every square meter. That's like every three feet all through your pastures. This particular, well, there's various species people use. They like to use this one called Lucina. It's a nitrogen fixing tree. Again, like a fertilizer tree, like a clover tree or an alfalfa tree. And you bring the cows into the field every once in a while and they graze those trees down to the ground and all the grasses and stuff in there. Um, and it sequesters really very impressive carbon, and it makes two to ten times more meat, like per acre, Whoa. per hectare, which is great. Or for dairy, can be used for dairy too. Um, so these are some examples of things here in the United States. We have things too, um, like they'll um, often grow uh, pecan and walnut trees with annual crops in between, like mm-hmm. corn or cotton. Wow. Um, so where there's that, lot. Where is that happening? Well, mostly not in the Northeast, but in similar climates. And it's like through a lot of the Midwest, Missouri is a really big place where these kinds of things happen, for example. Okay. Uh, And there's a lot of like pecan and cotton all through Georgia and stuff. Mm. Really, the Northeast is one of the lamest regions for this kind of stuff in that it's, it's just not one of the most... It's not one of the places where the most powerful practices are being done. Um... Uh, we're really good at organic vegetable production, and that's great, but that is far from the only practice. It's one of about 40 different kinds of practices, so it's great, and it's not remotely the only thing, and it's not the most powerful on a per-acre basis either. Um, 
you know, I like vegetables. I think they're great. I want people to continue to grow them. But there are other, there's a whole toolkit of kinds of practices we can use. And we're, we're very, very far from utilizing all of them here in the Northeast. So when you're saying, you're not saying alternatives to organic, but in addition to? Or just addition, other things. Right. They, they can be done organically or oh, not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, generally, the trend is when they're done organically, they sequester more carbon. Mm-hmm. But even an inorganic, a non-organic, you know, chemical type agroforestry system is often going to sequester a lot more carbon than a regular field of organic crops. Mm. So, but then you could make the agroforestry system organic and then you're really talking. So, you know, that's, uh, and not all these practices are ready for all climates. Like some of the coolest ones aren't really ready for commercial scale production here in the Northeast. Mm. But lots of them are, and we certainly could be doing more of the ones that are ready while we research the ones that um, we haven't quite figured out how to yeah. do here yet. I'm, I'm fantasizing about making a documentary about this. It just feels like that. Have you? I'm sure you've thought of that. I think about it a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, In the book, about. we put uh, almost 200 color photographs because uh-huh. I feel like these images yeah. are so important to... Mm-hmm to make people see and I got photos from all over the world so you can really see you know uh the United States uh a bunch from you know like the uh, industrialized farms in in or big you know tractor scale farms in the US and um and in Europe and in Australia um uh and very small scale systems so I have photos from Africa and Asia and Latin America and Australia and the U S and Europe in there mm-hmm. to really show them that it can be for great big farms or really tiny farms, mechanized or animal powered or hand powered, um, tropics or, or temperate or even boreal, like really cold mm-hmm. could be for crops, for livestock, a whole, there's so many, uh, or for raw materials for, for bioplastics and stuff. So there's a whole range of things. It's really, um, there's a, it's a palette we have for painting with, you yeah. know, and you can mix and match them in different ways. Right. You could blend the colors together to get different kinds of mm. uh, paintings that you want to lay over your landscape. It's, it's not, I'm not offering a prescription of how you should do it. Right. I'm more saying here's the things that people can choose that farmers can use or communities can choose that mm. they want to prioritize. Far be it for me to, you know have a plan for the entire planet worked right. out. That's a bigger project. <laughs> that seems like a job for more than one person. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to get down to the acre level of that either. But then, <laughs> and, and then there are people like I, I've just barely skimmed the surface of this, but there's such a, a network of people who are excited about permaculture and trying to learn what they can. And then, and then trying to apply it on the acre at a time scale. Um, I, I'm, hoping to tap into some of that because i have you know my own acre that i would like to be doing yeah doing better by you know i mean i've been growing vegetables for myself over since i've been here in the first year it just must be the typical pattern for someone who kind of knows what they're doing you have an amazing yield the first year and okay the second and then suddenly there's lots of pests and yeah and then it goes downhill and i'm not replenishing and i don't have um I'm a little intimidated by the idea of taking having animals to to start to have their ways to fertilize, but yeah. it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And so, I definitely hope to explore it more. What would you 
what would you advise how would you advise that I start on my own little tiny small scale well I will first say I have a tenth of an acre okay. so you have ten times more land you have a giant <laughs> giant farm i have a plantation yeah a huge huge farm <laughs> let's see okay um so uh well i actually uh, have is, two acres you have two acres oh my gosh forget <laughs> about it that's that's so much that's some so much. of it's forest well that's great and, and there's very things, rocky there's things you can do in a rocky forest too like mm. uh grow mushrooms oh i've been wanting and, to do that yeah and plant uh edible things that like shade like mm-hmm. pawpaw trees right. and oh can you do that up here i thought yeah. it was more su- south of us but. uh they are native up to michigan oh okay and um we grow them here uh, on the north side of the house they they're oh, in the really? shade and boy, do they make a lot of fruit. Oh, it's really? Lovely. Wow. So there's definitely things we can do. Not I, quite as cool as in the tropics where you're going to grow like your own cacao or something yeah. up there. But we have nice crops for shade here. Perfectly okay. nice crops and a lot of native ones. So huh. you could do the like productive restoration with native shade crops in the forest. And then you could, you know, pay some more attention to the annual crop thing, either bringing in compost or getting some rabbits or chickens or a little worm farm or something or humanure composting. Mm-hmm. Um, but also adding some, um, there are, we have vegetables that grow on trees here. There's a bunch of trees with edible leaves that are extremely nutritious. Really? That are really easy to grow because they're just trees. They just kind of grow. Oh. So I like, uh, I grow a bunch of trees with edible leaves here. We, we mostly cut them down every year about chest height. Mm-hmm. So they don't, um, uh, we don't have room for big trees on a tenth mm-hmm. of an acre. Mm-hmm. But you can get some nice tree leaves and then we grow. Um, and then there's so many like berries and fruits that are really easy to grow and nuts that are really easy to grow mm-hmm. um, that you can, uh, um, so you're, you're, you're sequestering carbon at that scale. Um, you're reducing emissions of the food that they're replacing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, um, well, mostly that sequestering carbon and reducing emissions. Yes. Well, and then the other benefits that they, that they, that they provide like, um, like, uh, biodiversity benefits and stuff. And we found that by incorporating a lot of, uh, different kinds of flowers, including a lot of like, uh, native perennial wildflowers and ground covers, we get excellent pest control, mm-hmm. For many things, not everything. We haven't found anything good for slugs yet in our particular <laughs> system here, uh-huh. but um, but we really don't have problems with like caterpillars or aphids or any of those kind of things. We have some beetles and some slugs, spider mites. We have under control now just by having a healthy ecosystem for wow. them to live in, and and that's kind of the part of the benefit of these carbon farming systems, whether they're at big or small scale, is they. They have benefits for biodiversity. They have benefits for pest control. They have benefits for drought resistance. They help the plants resist diseases better because when there's more organic matter in the soil, that makes the plants um, healthier. It makes a healthier ecosystem happening and with the microbes and stuff in the soil, and that makes the plants more resistant, generally speaking, but not always. And that's pretty cool. And, I mean, I think probably it bears repeating for people who are still very new to the idea of permaculture, it's you're not starting from scratch every planting season. These, these are plants that are going to, you said three years to 300 or so, you know. Yeah. Many of them come back year after year after Mm -hmm. year. And like, I have some now I have some perennial broccolis. It's called, but it's a, basically it's a perennial broccoli 
It's called I started what? sea kale, like oh, ocean kale. kale. Okay. And I planted this them from seed in the year 2000. And they're still making broccoli every year, and it's That's 2016. Awesome. Wow. They don't make as quite as much broccoli or quite as big, but they are essentially very, very little work, and they're mm-hmm. quite delicious. And they're also earlier. They come in uh, around late April instead of, like, July. Mm-hmm. So I don't have other broccoli then. <laughs> so there's, there's a nice uh, seasonal complementarity oh, with a lot nice. of these perennial crops yeah. as well. So... Uh, to bring us back to the climate change topic, even though we're, we haven't really left it, I just I guess I wanted to ask you to say more about the process of putting your mind here. I, I was really interested when you said that when you saw this book by the author that you love, that you were like, oh, well, I guess I have to read it because it's by him. <laughs> <laughs> because the feeling I'm assuming was like, oh, climate change. No, yeah, I'm, not fun. I'm not one of these people who yeah. likes to watch bad news documentaries. Yeah. You know, people be like, oh, you should watch this documentary about climate change. That is the last thing I want to do is mm-hmm. watch some bad news thing for yeah. two hours, you know. <laughs> Maybe partly because a lot of my job has been to look at bad news for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do it on my free time. <laughs> um, but it just seemed like it's so big and it's so overwhelming and there's nothing I could do anyway. And, you know... Uh, who wants to who wants to look at that? Why would you know why would anybody want to do that? The answer is, well, um, to avoid a genocide on a scale never before seen by humanity that is completely avoidable. Well, that's starting to seem like a pretty good motivation <laughs> to me. <laughs> that's a really good reason yeah. to to take a look is like, oh my gosh, we could prevent you know, hundreds of millions of deaths. Well, that's okay. I guess I could, you know, man up and like read a book or something. If I have to. <laughs> that's what it takes for me to deal with this. Um, so, uh, oh, that's and I, hilarious. That should be a t-shirt man up and read a book. Yes. You know, it's not as though, woman um, up. yeah, woman <laughs> up. It's scary. You know, it's, um, uh, it's discouraging, but I, uh, I have found that sort of pushing through that has enabled me to um, uh, to sort of like get a grasp. I had to relearn. I had to learn like math. I had to learn some chemistry. I had to learn some physics to be able to understand what exactly what exactly is climate change and how exactly does it work and how exactly does farming fight climate change how does that even work i had to remember like photosynthesis from biology class you know that was a long time ago for me but it's been really nice to relearn all those things now and um and like learn to read scientific papers and stuff i had to do a a bunch of developing my science literacy Mm. how much of this do you feel like you did on your own or you know how did you i mean i feel like those kind of things Taking on all of that, it can be sort of invisible, the, the part where where you actually work through stuff and get support. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, lots and lots of people were involved. You know, there's a big acknowledgement section in this book. Mm-hmm. So first, there's people that I interviewed, and there's people who provided photographs, and there's people who reviewed sections. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and then there was a lot of people in my life who just like spend a little time to listen to me about how miserable mm-hmm. 
uh, it is writing in general Mm -hmm. and how uh, sort of like horrifying, like there's people I had to call up and be like, guess what I learned today about how many people die from cotton pesticide poisoning every Uh, year, things like that. So I had to sort of like uh, uh, be able to be horrified with people a little bit um, so that I could turn back in and go back in with enthusiasm and vigor and energy really the end result was and there was a lot of people who helped with that and the end result is really that i do really feel more more hopeful that it's absolutely doable it doesn't mean we will succeed in doing it right. but it's doable right and knowing that it's a doable and that it is you know preventing massive really avoidable genocide that seems like a really, really, mm-hmm. my, my feelings seem like a pretty lame, bad excuse. They seem like a bad excuse for uh, holding back from doing it. I have a friend uh, that I interviewed on this podcast who's a climate scientist at the University of Connecticut and teaches climate change, you know, mm-hmm. the reality mm-hmm. of climate change. And um, I asked her at one point if she was hopeful or or not, she was saying there's kind of a spectrum when it comes to climate scientists, of course, as there is with all humans. And she quoted Hans Rosling, I think his name is, who does all these, if you just look him up on TED, you know, and you'll see his talks with all these um, just like interactive graphics about um, demographics and stuff. But anyway, what he said was, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist, I am a possibilist, and puts his mind on what's possible rather than and that's that seems to be the kind of discipline I'm kind of getting to in my own mind is like mm. I can feel those feelings about hope or lack of hope, but ultimately they're irrelevant. <laughs> Either sort of pitch in and try to make a change because you think it's possible, um, or you know, or not. So so I'm glad to hear that after three years of putting your mind on this, that you've come to a place where possibleist is the. Is the is probably the category that you fit under. <laughs> that seems to be where where I have emerged, and yeah. uh, it's not that it's not important to have a place for those feelings to go because you can't just climb over them. I right. can't just climb over them, but right. um, but uh, it, yeah, it's not a it's not an insurmountable project to do that. Like in my in the classes that I teach, when I have I do a little piece. Mostly, I teach the good news, you know. But when I mm. get to the bad news parts. I stop and have a little break for people to like uh, say like, okay, now we're going to stop and we have a little room to talk about this. So find a person next to you and you talk for five minutes about what you're feeling and they talk for five minutes about what they're feeling. You got to like cleanse your palate. You got to clear yeah. the air after that sort of thing because right. um, it is especially horrifying. And when I have people in the classes who are from the regions that are especially being hammered and going to be really hammered by climate change, um, like almost anybody from anywhere in the tropics, really, yeah. um, you know, you, you need to give some room to um, for people to really to, to to grieve in advance and to think a little bit about what that's going to mean for for their family and stuff right. um, before you can then move on to talking about parts per million or particular kinds of carbon mm-hmm. practices and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I, I was recently in, in I was in Paris at the big. I was about to Excuse ask me, you about that climate thing there, yeah, yeah. and uh, and I I presented to a group of um, uh, delegates from sub-Saharan Africa, and they uh, th- there's no doubt among them that climate change is is very real. It's already very very much mm-hmm. having an impact. And one of the things I heard is that okay, there's this belt of like um, 
uh, rainforest type, you know, more humid climates along the west coast of Africa there. And and then when you go inland, you get that Sahel, this savanna, drier savanna I was talking about earlier. And there's like a coalition of rainforest nations and a coalition of Sahel nations. It, the Sahel is moving into the rainforest nations wow. at 30 to 40 miles a year. Wow. So these rainforest nations are starting to join the Sahel coalition because they need to learn how to teach their farmers who've lived in a human climate how to adapt to this new drier climate where they're so, farming. So they're basically the, the rainforests are drying out. They're not rainforests getting are chop, drying out. chopped down. It's no, no, they're out. just drying out. They're just wow. drying out. Oh, and wow. that's, you that's know, huge. a very significant, <laughs> very significant, and it's driving migration yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, refugees and a whole, there's a whole mm-hmm. set of problems yeah. that, um, uh, and and there are some, like I was saying, some really powerful techniques developed in the Sahel that are the ones that need to be getting on the ground there as right. soon as as soon as possible. That that for those farmers, they're much more interested in adapting to climate change than mitigating climate change. Like they need to survive first and foremost. Uh, and they're not going to stop climate change on their farm, mm-hmm. but they can adapt to climate change on their farm. But it happens that a lot of the best practices to adapt to climate change also sequester carbon and fight climate change at the same time. So I was mostly talking about those and and I gave away a bunch of like pre-order copies of the book to mm-hmm. um, delegates from different governments and, and organizations in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. That was a real treat and I'll be going to um, present in Kenya this uh, in Nairobi in, uh, in August at the World Agroforestry Center, which is really very nice that they... Yeah want me to come and think I have something to offer and um mostly I feel like mostly what I learned I learned from their publications <laughs> but um I, I guess I put a couple of new things in enough that that it's of interest to them and yeah, awesome. um, and it may be that these are practices that are adopted much more quickly in places where climate change is impacting mm-hmm. harder and where food security is more of a big deal it may be that the United States is one of the last places to really implement these things because our climate is less impacted. Well, our Western climate is drying out pretty right, well. California's right. had a rough run uh, <laughs> for sure. But, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the need is a little bit less pressing here. The, mm-hmm. the impact is a little bit less hard here. And, and our government doesn't really want to admit that the thing is even happening or mm-hmm. our Congress doesn't really want to admit the thing right. is even happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mission is sort of to work where... Where, there's where, a where I'm needed. Yeah. Where you can be listened, heard. Yeah, I got it. And there's, you know, so many people. The other cool thing about this book is I learned there's so many people doing this around the world. I kind of felt like there weren't many of us. And I learned, like, you know, there's there's hundreds of millions of farmers doing these practices already around the world. It's just they're still the, the minority of farmers total in the world, the minority of, of amount of land in the world total. But really, it's... um. It's uh, a lot of these things are very white, like practiced on some of them are practiced on hundreds of millions of acres and have been for thousands of years. Well, have, go back thousands of years mm-hmm. anyway, you know, um, and that was really new to my understanding that um, so many things are, are, are so old and so established. Mm-hmm. While there are also some newly developed things, which are really cool. Some of these traditional practices are just amazing. Part of our mission is just to like stop destroying those traditional systems. <laughs> just get out of the way yeah. and let continue. Yeah. Let or even expand. Right. 
you know, it's not just about new things. It's about honoring things that, that actually work and just mm-hmm. stopping from messing them up. Right. So tell me more about Paris. What was that like for you? Oh, sure. So let um, me just make sure that uh, other people listening know what we're talking about. We're talking about the conference What is on... Congress of the Parties. Congress of the Parties, 21, <laughs> of the 21st time that the United Nations has convened this conference on climate change, basically, care of the environment. So, yeah. And you were there, and it was just recently happened, uh, end of November, beginning of December in Paris, and next year it's going to be in Morocco. I yeah, believe. I'll be there. I'll yeah. be there, Marrakesh. Yeah. Uh, so okay, let's see. Yeah, it was in it was in Paris, and I was there with a, a group called Project Drawdown, who I work with, who do a lot of. Uh, we're sort of like making projections on a hundred different climate solutions, agricultural buildings, transportation, energy, kind of the whole industry, mm-hmm. the whole civilization. <laughs> Looking at different aspects of civilization to see what the impact. What's the optimistically plausible level of adoption by 2045 mm-hmm. and what the climate impact and economic impact would be by then right. and see if we can start to bring the total amount of carbon down mm-hmm. through implementing mm-hmm. things like solar panels and better kinds of farming and, and so on. Okay, so I was there with them and um, uh, I was there for about 10 days and the uh, I was both in the sort of like government area, like I got to go in and meet in the in the blue, the restricted blue zone where the sort of like government negotiations were happening. I was in there for a little bit to to give this talk um, and meet with some folks, um, and then I also got was at the 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 sort of like NGO forum area, and then I did just a lot of talking to people on the street, and I was staying in a hostel that was full of climate activists from all over the world. Mm. So. Um, I mean, I saw a couple of big things happening there. One is really the building of uh, the, the well, first it was just nice as someone from the United States to be somewhere where no one doubts the climate change is real and important. Yeah. That was very striking, actually. That was yeah. really different. That was cool. <laughs> um, and it was really nice to have breakfast and have, you know, like indigenous rights folks there and climate justice folks and the agriculture people and the like, you know, activists who were shutting things down on the streets and stuff, all sitting around the same table, having some, you know, delicious French breakfast and stuff. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of like cross fertilization and cross pollination happening. And that was really cool. I feel like the, the, the climate justice movement took a huge step forward there and uh, and for me personally, it was really nice to see agriculture so much part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Part of what I'm arguing for in the book is that we should be, when we talk about climate solutions, we should be talking about agriculture every bit as much as we talk about clean energy. Right. And I'm afraid by the time I got there, I learned that that part of the book was already a little outdated because it was really happening. And I feel like mm-hmm. for me and for a lot of the people that I spoke to there, this was kind of the the watershed moment of agriculture becoming part of the solution. And mm-hmm. that was true in conversations with, with NGOs and whatnot, but also in terms of what you would hear the big, like I got to hear uh, Naomi Klein speak and Bill McKibben mm-hmm. and Bandana Shiva and some of these big, yeah. big speakers. And they all talked about 
agriculture mm-hmm. as part of the solutions. And, and each country was required to submit like a plan, like a plan that turns out it's for about the next five years of what they're going to do for mitigation and adaptation. And, and agriculture was really uh, central to many of them. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, it's on the radar. It's still very new for a lot of people to think about and talk about, but it's, it's becoming a, a central part of the conversation in a way that it hasn't been in the mm-hmm. past. And that was really cool to, to see and be part of and sort of like feel like you were in the place where something was happening yeah. instead of in my basement writing by myself, which right. is where I am most of the time. So that was cool. It was really neat. It was really neat to be there. I just had the thought that, um, you know, here, when people think about agriculture and climate change, or just even in general, how we care for the environment and, and how they eat, there's maybe three little buzzwords, organic, local, you know, mm-hmm. seasonal. But there's so much further that we could be taking this, uh, clearly. Just the po- the fact that there are trees with edible leaves that, like, we don't even know, we've never heard of them. You know, <laughs> it's like... Okay, hmm, that's something, I mean, and, and the idea of this perennial broccoli that's, that comes to, to um, that's har- you're harvesting in April in Massachusetts. Speaking of Massachusetts and Naomi Klein, she's coming to Clark University in Worcester this Great. Friday. By the time people hear this podcast, this, that will have happened already, but I'm going. So I will talk about it. I have some friends going with me, so we'll talk about it on the podcast. So w- anything else that you, you would like to say? Um, so the book is very pricey, but I've put a lot of information from it for free up online. Mm, give us the and link. If people want to go to uh, carbonfarmingsolution.com, there's excerpts and there's links to all my favorite articles and books about it and a ton of videos from around the world that show these kinds of practices in action. Awesome. Uh, if people want to check it out, because I certainly don't want to restrict the book to people who can pay lots of money for it. Yeah. But you can also buy it if you want to through but that. You can also yeah. buy it and you can buy it there or or through your local bookstore. You can get your library to do it or you can get it on, you know, certain websites that sell books and things like that also mm-hmm. people like. Um, yeah. Okay. Anything, any words of, I wouldn't say wisdom, but maybe it is wisdom from experience. Um, for those of us who are, I guess, I would identify as somebody who's just trying to wrap my mind around it and take the first sort of baby steps towards moving through the overwhelm and just the grief and take action. And I know the answer is just like, you know, the acre to acre, what you do on your land, if you're growing food, the answer to this is going to be different for each person, but there might be some sort of universal thoughts that you have. Well, for those of us here in the Northeast, if you have some land or access to some land, uh, planting berries is a really easy first step. Mm. Berries are shrubs, so they're not real huge. Well, most berries are shrubs, so they're not real huge, but they're sequestering carbon above ground and in the soil, and they're delicious. Right. And a lot of them are really easy to grow, and a bunch of them grow in the shade. So that is a great place mm. to start. You mm-hmm. can feel very good about it it's something that's good for you uh and good for the environment and um and is a climate change fighting 
practice. Um, and I've been recommending some people are thinking about doing like uh, study groups with this book. Mm. And I've been encouraging them to stop and do these little think and listen exercises, mm. especially in the first chapter. That's the bad news chapter. <laughs> and just to, um, you know, take a little time and, 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 and do what you need to do in terms of uh, grieving or, or being horrified or, or um, cackling like a madman or, or whatever you got to do to, uh, to be able to, to clear a little space in your, in your mind about it. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. It's so awesome to, well, I get to see your face over Skype. Um, it's so awesome to see your face and to talk with you and to ha like have our paths sort of re, um, con what's the word I'm looking for? Come together, um, on something that, that feels so big and so, it just feels like I've my I've got my friend and my teammate, you know. Yes, <laughs> so that's awesome. Yes, you know that was really the profoundest thing about being in Paris. Actually, was mm -hmm. really being like, oh, this is a movement. This is an international movement. We are, uh, we're doing this together. A lot of people are doing right. this together. That was really cool. Um, a really cool thing. And mm -hmm. I also like that you and I are now suddenly uh, back in each other's lives and on duty in the. <laughs> uh, sort of like great challenge of humanity yeah. for this century. You know, I could stop right there, but I want to just say this one other thing. Um, uh, I remember having a conversation at one point and saying like, okay, if this is the Titanic going down, um, would I rather be up on the top decks trying to party for five more minutes? Or would I rather be pitching in down below and, you know, um, uh, hustling buckets, you know, yeah, bailing out the water or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe it's pointless, but who's the people I'd rather be with? I'm not going to find it more fun up on the top deck saying, ha ha, those suckers were all dying. We might as well <laughs> dance one more jig or whatever. So I love that that as a, as sort of a, a um, something to, to reach for, which is that putting your mind here puts you puts you in the scope of other people who are willing to put their mind here. And so you find, you find a tribe that who would you rather be with, you know, and then others who are, that you admire and are excited by and inspired by. So thanks for, thanks for that. So my goal with this podcast is to do a hundred conversations. You're number 31. All right. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. And I also intend and have been doing repeated conversations with people. Not every time. There's some people it's just a one-off. Um, in some cases, it's it's. I'm trying to get actually braver about having conversations with people who are in a different place about this than I am. Um, and then have repeated conversations with them and see how it moves things um, for both of us. But if ever there comes a point where there's another sort of chunk of evolution Great. in your own mind, I'd love to do it again. Great. Great. Absolutely. Um, HelloCC.info is the website for this podcast. There's also a Facebook page. Just look up Hello Climate Change. And thanks for listening. And uh, as always, I love to hear from you. You can find me through either of those links.